Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So just after Christmas, uh, I guess last year now, I got to go to Orchard House. I'm jealous. I know. Uh, for those of you who do not know, that is one of the many homes that Louisa May Alcott lived in, and it's also where she wrote the first half of the book Little Women. It's where a lot of that book was set. Uh, it was in such poor condition when the Alcotts bought it that it came for free with the land that it was sitting on, but it's actually still standing, thanks in part to a massive restoration job that involved shoring up the back of the house and then hand-digging a foundation out from under it because it had never had one. It had managed to stay upright for more than a 100 years with no foundation underneath it. So uh, during this visit, the house was decorated for Christmas, and the tour guide told us all about Louisa May Alcott and her sisters and her family and the lives that they lived in the house. Uh, And then because it was an unseasonably warm day, since New England's terrible winter had not set in yet, we took a walk down to Concord's Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, which is where the family gravesite is, as well as the gravesites of Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau, and the Emerson family, including Ralph Waldo Emerson. So this was really a trip that I took for fun, but naturally it had to become a podcast episode. It's actually going to become two podcast episodes. There's the one that's today on Louisa May Alcott. Uh, and also there will be one uh, a little later about some of the other Alcotts because they had their own stories and their own notable contributions to the world in which they lived. Um, kind of a weird note. I don't know if you do this, Holly. Every time I'm working on an episode, I sort of think about how to how to refer to the person we're talking about, mm-hmm. like what name to use. Uh, Louisa May Alcott herself was kind of a prickly person. <laughs> I don't. I don't feel entirely comfortable calling her Louisa. <laughs> I actually understand that because I don't think I would be comfortable with just her first name. Uh-huh. Problem is, there are so many Alcotts we're talking about this entire time that trying to call her just Alcott became extremely confusing. Uh, so I feel like I just need to apologize to her in advance for being overly familiar. <laughs> we could always just call her LMA the whole time. I'm sure she would have loved that. <laughs> In any case, (laughs) Louisa May Alcott was born on November 29th of 1832 in Germantown, Pennsylvania. And her mother, Abigail May Alcott, who went by ABBA, was a social worker and an activist, in addition to taking care of the household duties that would typically fall to women at the time. Uh, The father, Amos Bronson Alcott, was a teacher and an educational reformer. Some of Little Women is specifically patterned after Louisa May Alcott's young life. She really did have three sisters. Anna was the oldest and became Meg in the books. She and Louisa were actually the only two who were born yet when the family moved from Pennsylvania to Boston while Louisa was still a toddler. The next sister was Elizabeth, who was known to the family as Lizzie and who became Beth in the books. The youngest sister, May, became Amy in the books, and her first name was really Abigail after their mother. Uh, and Louisa and her sisters grew up very, very poor. Her parents were both idealistic in a way that meant they perpetually had almost no money. Uh, they were both activists, although each in different ways. Bronson had revolutionary ideas about how children should be educated, which he wanted to put into action. 
and Abigail wanted to fight against injustice wherever she saw it. Neither of these are terribly lucrative enterprises, and although Abigail's family was relatively prominent, her father was not supportive of Bronson's wilder schemes, and he actually took pains to keep his money from funding them. Bronson Alcott's philosophies of teaching were also really controversial, and this is something that we are going to discuss in another episode in more detail. But it did apply to both what he taught and how he taught it. This was an era in which school was mostly about memorizing things by rote. And he really thought that children should participate in their education in a sort of Socratic question and answer process. He also thought physical education should be part of children's course of study. Yeah, if anybody's ever read Eight Cousins, which is my absolute favorite Louisa May Alcott book, and I sometimes joke that it was my third parent growing up. Uh, Uncle Alec is very clearly based on these ideas that her father uh, put forth and were really quite influential to me reading them as a young kid where I was like, yeah, women should be out doing exciting things and not just sitting and reading quietly. Uh, so <laughs> these ideas are not strange at all today, but at the time they were really revolutionary. And Bronson rubbed parents as well as other educators the wrong way more than once. His most successful school endeavor, which we are going to talk about in the other episode that Tracy is preparing, uh, only stayed open a few years. He was often out of work, and sometimes this loss of work also came along with a huge debt, thanks to the money that he would put into these projects in the first place. So the Alcott family moved a lot, nearly 30 times, before they settled into the now-famous Orchard House. The family's idealism also made their lifestyle generally more expensive than it might have been otherwise. At times, Bronson was determined to live off the land. And when he did this, sometimes he was actually pretty successful at bringing in enough food to keep the family fed. But it didn't really leave anything extra for them to live on. Plus, they often had extra mouths to feed. They would shelter runaway slaves or they would offer hospitality to other transcendentalist thinkers and educators in the area. And on top of that, they did things in a way that was generally more expensive. For example, they would pay more money to buy linen rather than cotton for all of their clothing because cotton was picked by slaves and they refused to have any tie to that. And in terms of their upbringing, the girls were taught at home by their father or at a school where he taught if he had one to teach at. Uh, And sometimes they were tutored by other educators who worked with their father. Their days were divided into, quote, an order of indoor duties, which outlined meals, rest, studies and recreation in the morning, forenoon, noon, afternoon and evening. And this order of duties also outlined how the girls were to behave, including giving, quote, prompt, cheerful, unquestioning obedience. This probably sounds really strict, but at the same time, the girls were given ample reign to learn and to express themselves creatively. May, who was the budding artist in the family, was allowed to draw on the walls of her room, for example, and Louisa was allowed to read and write as much as she wanted. They were all encouraged to become independent and to think for themselves, although... At the same time, while they were growing up, they were doing so under guidelines that were set down by an often very domineering father. And before we talk about some of the specifics that shaped Louisa May Alcott's outlook in her writing, uh, let's have a word from one of our fabulous sponsors. So to get back to Louisa May Alcott, uh, for those of our listeners who have read or watched or maybe just talked about or heard of Little Women, Joe March 
is sort of lovably difficult. She is a lot of readers' favorite character, especially when it comes to girls who are kind of tomboyish and want to grow up to be independent and kind of free-spirited. But for many of her early years, Louisa May Alcott herself was not lovably difficult. She was just difficult. (laughs) She She was stubborn to the point of being obstinate, and the extremes of her mood were so drastic that some biographers today theorize that she had a mood disorder. She was wild and difficult enough that her mother actually sent her away while she was pregnant with one of her younger sisters. She'd actually had a miscarriage while Bronson's school was failing, and this was something she was afraid was going to happen again, so she wanted to remove one of the big sources of stress from her life for a little while. And this was one of the very few separations uh, that happened while Louisa was growing up, because both of her parents thought that their family was more important than them as individuals. So Abigail was, for many years, unconditionally supportive of Bronson's plans, even if they seemed doomed to failure. As one example, Bronson and an English reformer named Charles Lane tried to start a transcendentalist commune together in Harvard, Massachusetts. The family moved there when Louisa was 10, and she later wrote about it in a satire called Transcendentalist Wild Oats. Unsurprisingly, if you have also listened to our episode on the Brook Farm community, this commune did not work out. But Abigail supported this plan until Charles Lane's philosophy started to threaten the structure of their family. He wanted to live in the style of the Shakers, with the men and women separated from one another. I can't remember if we talk about this in the Brook Farm episode. Uh, but Bronson Alcott actually wanted to join Brook Farm specifically, but he didn't have the money to do it, which is why they tried to start their own thing. Um, apart from this constant poverty that they were living in and, and moving around over and over and over, the family had a number of other struggles on top of that when Louisa May Alcott was young. They all got smallpox while living in overcrowded conditions in Boston in the early 1850s, and kind of miraculously, they all survived it. All of these various failures in his life made Bronson, at some times, kind of a conquered laughingstock. They were constantly being rescued through the charity of their friends, including Ralph Waldo Emerson, who just kept bailing Bronson out in one way or another, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, who at one point bought a house they had owned for enough money that it let them pay off some of Bronson's debts. However, being in Concord, Massachusetts, which was home to many of the best writers and thinkers of that era in the United States, meant that some of those same people became close friends of the Alcotts. Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau were neighbors, and Louisa was extremely fond of both of these men. She'd leave anonymous bunches of wildflowers on Emerson's door, and it's widely speculated that Thoreau was one of the inspirations for the character of Laurie, although there are others which we will talk about later. Once Louisa was old enough to be out on her own, she moved to Boston by herself for a while. But she came back in the late 1850s when her sister Lizzie was extremely sick with scarlet fever. The rest of the family had by that point moved into Orchard House, which was, as we alluded to earlier, extremely dilapidated. It was so run down that Louisa called it Apple Slump, the apple part of the name coming from the orchard that her father planted there. Lizzie died on March 14th of 1858, and Louisa and the rest of the family were, of course, heartbroken. This was made worse a couple of months later when Anna announced that she was engaged to John Pratt. Rather than thinking of this as a happy time, Louisa and Abigail both felt like this was a further destruction of their family. 
So Louisa moved into Orchard House so her mother wouldn't feel like she was losing three daughters. The United States Civil War started in 1861, and Louisa pretty much immediately volunteered to be a nurse. On December 11th, 1862, she got a letter that ordered her to report for duty at Union Hotel Hospital in Washington, D.C. As its name suggests, that is a hotel that the Army had taken over to use as a hospital. Uh, she only worked as a nurse for six weeks, though, because she got pneumonia. And while sick with pneumonia, she also got typhoid. The Alcotts had mostly treated themselves when they were sick, using homeopathy and rest. And although there's little evidence to suggest that homeopathy is effective in treating most diseases, this was probably better than the treatments advocated by mainstream medicine at the time. This was definitely true when it came to Louisa May Alcott's own treatment for pneumonia and typhus. She was treated with mercury. So in addition to the effects of pneumonia and typhus, she had mercury poisoning to deal with. The mercury treatments caused nerve and muscle damage that she never really recovered from. Hannah Ropes, who was another nurse that had gotten sick at the same time as Louisa did, died. And when that happened, the hospital sent for Bronson. It took days before Louisa was well enough to travel back to Concord. And once she did, she continued to be desperately sick for weeks. And at one point, she was advised to shave her head to try to combat the, combat the illness which she did, and this may have been uh, an inspiration for a later cutting off of Joe March's hair in Little Women to sell during the Civil War. Kind of a twisting of what really happened in real life. Although she did recover her health somewhat, for about the next 10 years, Louisa May Alcott experienced pain, she had headaches, she had dizziness, and her health was never really strong again. And over the years, she had several seeming relapses, in which she once again became critically ill. She did recover enough to be able to travel, though. Apart from that one trip to Washington, D.C. during the Civil War, she had never been outside of New England, and that changed in her early 30s when she was hired to be a nurse to a young girl named Anna Weld and to accompany her on a tour of Europe. This was actually supposed to be a year-long post, but Louisa only made it for 10 months. She got really exasperated with her young charge, who didn't particularly want to do a whole lot, while Louisa May Alcott naturally wanted to explore and go do things and write and be active and see this place that she had traveled. So she quit. (laughs) It was on this trip to Europe that she met one of the other major influences for the character of Lori, Ladislaw Wisniewski, a chronically ill young man from Poland. And after Louisa quit her post with Anna Weld, the two of them traveled to Paris alone. And exactly what the nature of their relationship was continues to be a bit of a source of speculation among biographers. That is a, it's a wide range of the speculation that comes up. There's the nothing happened speculation. And then there's the they were in love with each other, but they knew that it would never work out speculation. And then there's the they were just friends speculation. Like... But nobody really it's widely, knows. widely disparate, the theories and what went on there. Louisa had actually started writing as a young girl, and she wrote extensively during this tour around Europe. But it was after she got home that she really started an earnest effort to write for money. She had tried to earn money to help her family in several different ways, including sewing and teaching. But writing was what she liked the best out of those three. And it seemed as though she had the potential to generate some real income that way. So we'll talk about how that went after another brief break for a word from a sponsor. 
So Louisa May Alcott had started publishing her work in 1854 at the age of 22. So about 10 years before this trip to Europe that we just talked about. Her first book was called Flower Fables, and it came out in 1855. Much of her earlier work came out under a pseudonym. She published prose and poetry under the name Flora Fairfield, and a number of plays which came out in Boston, which were published under the name A.M. Bernard. It seemed like she wanted to publish so she could make money, but she also wanted to save her real name for the things that she was really proud of. She finished her first novel, which was called Moods, in 1861. And even though she'd become pretty well-known as a writer by this point, she had trouble finding a publisher for it. James T. Fields told her, Stick to your teaching, Miss Alcott. You can't write. However, thankfully, Louisa May Alcott was extremely stubborn, and being told to stick to her teaching seems to have made her all that much more determined to make a living as a writer. She published Moods after rewriting it to make it significantly shorter in 1864, and it received mixed reviews. She rewrote it yet again and republished it in 1882, and at that point, she was such a well-known writer that it sold very well. Happening at the same time as her rewriting and trying to find a publisher for Moods, she also published Hospital Sketches, which came out in 1863 and was kind of a fictionalized memoir based on her time as a Civil War nurse. In the fall of 1867, Alcott's publisher, Thomas Niles, asked her to write a book for girls. And she really didn't want to do it. She didn't think she was qualified to write such a book at all. She had no children of her own, and as a girl, she had not been particularly girlish. And even though her three sisters were more typically feminine than she was, she didn't think their relatively unusual life would have a wide enough appeal. But she said she'd try, and she did start. But it did not go well, and she put it aside. That same year, she became a contributing editor of Mary's Museum, which was a magazine for children. She was paid $500 a year to do this, and she moved to Boston so that she could take the job. Uh, For a little while, her sister May also lived with her. It's possible that this did give her a little bit more experience in the world of writing for children, which might have helped her a little later on. And then the following spring, her father sat down with Niles to talk about what she should do next. Bronson Alcott was there to suggest that she write a book of fairy tales, but what Niles really still needed was a book for juvenile readers. So it was back to his original request. He wanted a book for girls. And Louisa still didn't really want to do it. However, Niles told her that he would publish a book of philosophy that her father was writing if she wrote the book for girls that he was asking for. So, continuing to be dutiful to her father and her family, That's what Louisa May Alcott did. She resigned from Mary's Museum, and she moved back to Orchard House so that she could really focus on writing. And she wrote Little Women at a desk that her father built for her in her room in Orchard House, basing it on her own upbringing, but setting it there. And it took her 10 weeks to write it. It was just the first part of the book as we know it today, which takes place while Mr. March is away fighting the Civil War. And she really expected everyone to hate it. Thomas Niles thought it could sell, though. She had the option of taking a $1,000 flat payment, which would be, you know, twice her annual salary at Mary's Museum for a book that it had only taken her 10 weeks to write. Or she could get $300 up front, followed by a 6.66% royalty per book. And she chose the latter option. And that worked out very, very well for her. 
Little Women sold out its first print run, and a second had to be ordered. And the publisher asked for a sequel in which Louisa made it very, very clear that she would not marry Joe to Lori for anything. It really got on her nerves how many people asked her who the Little Women married. That just rankled her extremely. (laughs) She was like, what what did you take away from this book? Who you get married to is not the be-all, end-all of everything. She had, like, very clear opinions on that. It was extremely frustrating to her. So she wrote the second part of Little Women in Boston, and it was even more successful than the first half had been. It led to further sequels, and these books made her financially independent. They let her pay off all of her father's debts, It gave her family financial security. Monetary contributions became a big way that she showed love to the rest of her family. And the sales of her books also funded a grand tour of Europe for Louisa and May and their friend Alice Bartlett. This trip was particularly important to May's development as an artist, which we are going to talk about in the Alcott's episode that we have brewing. The tour itself was also just the fact that it existed, uh, Pretty notable, like the it was three unmarried women who were traveling unaccompanied, arranging the whole thing themselves, adjusting their arrangements based on various wars and conflicts that broke out while they were in Europe. So the the fact that they did this was a, a uncharacteristically independent for what was expected of women at the time. Sadly, a series of tragedies struck the Alcott family later on in Louise's life. John Pratt died in 1870, which left Anna and the two boys behind. And this was part of what prompted Louisa to write Little Men. Uh, That was to make sure that Anna and her children would have enough money to live on. And then Abigail Alcott died in 1877. May went back to Europe, and she got married there in 1878. The following year, on November the 8th, she had a baby who she named Louisa May after her sister, and they nicknamed the baby Lulu. Although Lulu was healthy, May never recovered from the delivery, and she died on December 28, 1879. She specified that Louisa would be the one to raise Lulu. So after some arrangements were made, May's husband, Ernest Nieriker, and his sister traveled with the baby to Massachusetts to bring her to Louisa. And Louisa had become extremely close to May during their travels together, so she was, of course, devastated by her death as she had been when Lizzie died when she was much younger. But she loved Lulu. She raised her until her own failing health meant she could no longer do so. She also started taking care of her father after he had a terrible stroke near the end of his life. Louisa went to visit her father, who was at that point really in failing health, on March 1st, 1888. According to her sister Anna, her father said to Louisa, I am going up. Come with me. And Louisa replied, oh, I wish I could. Her father then told her to come soon. And it's really the only the come soon part that appears in Louisa's own journals. And Bronson Alcott died three days later on March 4th. Word didn't make it to Louisa before she fell into a coma about a day later after she had been complaining of a headache and a weight on her chest. She died on March 6th of 1888. As the New York Times wrote in her obituary, Quote, there was probably no writer among women better loved by the young than she. And before her death, she had sold more than a million books, and her fiction had earned her more than $200,000. Which is an astronomical amount of money at that time. 
all of these books, if you've never read Little Women or any of the other things, they're all in the public domain now. And you can basically read all of them on the Internet for free. Yeah, a lot of them are available through book sites for free as free downloads. They're everywhere, which is how I I re-picked up uh, Eight Cousins a few years ago when it was offered as a free download. And I just remember marveling and going like, I always knew this book was super inf- influential on me. This book was super influential on me. Like it kind of put in sharp contrast just how much I had kind of taken away from it. Yeah, it, sh- it should come as a surprise to nobody that all of the books about young tomboyish women who wanted to be writers appealed to me extremely as a child. So, uh, yeah, but you, you might not be surprised if at some point in the future there is some other trip I make to some other writer's house that I do for fun and then it becomes an episode. We just try to make sure they're not too close together. <laughs> do you also have some listener mail to wrap up with? I do. Before we get to it, we, that, there is going to be a, an upcoming episode soon. It might not be the very next one that we do, but soon that we'll talk more about, uh, especially Bronson Alcott and um, and May Alcott, because they each had very fascinating stories and contributions of their own, which I think become overshadowed in the Louisa May Alcott story a lot. And I do have listener mail, and it is about our recent episode about Dr. Vera Peters. Um, and it is from Joan. Joan says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I've listened to your podcast for a few years now, but I'm writing for the first time. I am an emergency medicine physician in St. Louis and a St. Louis native, although I did my medical school training in Dublin, Ireland. Toward the end of your show on Dr. Peters, one of you mentions a concern over a scientific paper with two authors in which the male author was referred to as doctor and the female as miss. There are three possible reasons for this. One, sexism. Highly likely. Two, the woman was possibly a medical student or full-time researcher and not yet a medical doctor when she did the work on the paper. Uh, I'm going to pause real quickly. Those are the two options that we knew about (laughs) and theorized uh, in the show. And the thing that leads me to read this letter is now option three. She was a surgeon from outside the U.S. or Canada. To explain three, all over the world today, medical school graduates are given the title doctor. Back in the days before proper sterilization and anesthetic techniques allowed for complex surgeries, however, surgeons were considered to be lower on the totem pole than physicians. Surgeons typically did shorter training programs, which involved mainly amputations and simple procedures. And as their training and expertise were considered inferior to that of physicians, they were called Mr. rather than Dr. In the modern era, surgery has advanced significantly and became a very respected field within medicine. The U.S. and Canada began referring to all physicians and surgeons as doctor. In much of the rest of the world, however, surgery's less auspicious beginnings are now a mark of pride, and they actually prefer to be called Mr. or Ms. And, in fact, will often get very testy with you, especially if you are one of their lowly medical students, if you make the mistake of calling them doctor. Currently, when medical students graduate in Europe, for example, they are called doctor, Although once those who choose surgery as a career complete their surgical training, they go back to being Mr. or Ms. My default don't get yelled at maneuver when I was in school in Ireland and uncertain if the attending slash consultant was a physician or surgeon was to call him or her professor. Because even if they weren't a professor, this would be considered a compliment. After this whole explanation, though, it's highly possible that the publisher of the paper you read was simply uh, being condescending and sexist. Despite that, I thought both 
I thought you both would like knowing that there are other completely plausible and benign explanations that might be true as well. Thanks very much and keep up the great podcasts, Joan. We got a couple of notes uh, alluding to this disparity in how people refer to surgeons uh, in different parts of the world. And it also came up on the podcast Sawbones right at the same time as all of this was happening. So I wanted to uh, to read this letter. It also cracks me up that she has a default don't get yelled at because we have some of those too on the show. <laughs> some default don't get yelled at maneuvers. Uh, I like to not be yelled at. Uh, I actually, the, so this paper was uh, from during a time when sexism was extremely common in the medical field, but it also was written by someone in Great Britain. So it's entirely possible that option three was the actual correct option in this. Uh, and one last thing before we close out the show, I want to thank the folks at Bully Pulpit Games for sending us a copy of the Night Witches game, which we talked about in our Night Witches episode. I have not gotten to play it yet, but I was extremely thrilled when I walked into the office one day and there it was in an envelope waiting for me. Thank you so much for sending that to us. Uh, we have talked about maybe we should have a How Stuff Works uh, podcasters game session sometime in the relatively near future, but I do definitely have it on my soon to be played list. Um, if you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, we are at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to learn more about, uh, for example, medicine in the past, you can come to our website, which is howstuffworks.com. That is where our parent company is located. Or you can come to our site, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find an archive of all of our episodes and show notes and some other cool blog posts and whatnot. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.